0: Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Shalom, my name is Leah Shakdiel. I am an Israeli, sabra. I live in Yeruchan, a small development town in the Negev desert and am currently learning towards rabbinical ordination in Beit Midrash Ha'El in Jerusalem with Rabbi Herzl Hefter. Our tractate, Masechet, is named Tamid, a word that means always, but in this context can be better translated as everyday. It presents the daily morning worship at the temple in Jerusalem. In chronological order. As such, it should have been the first tractate in this volume of the Mishnah, Kodashim, that deals with the temple worship. But since the volume is arranged according to the length of the tractates, from the longest to the shortest, a system that maybe had to do with the preservation of scrolls in ancient times, and since this tractate has only seven chapters, it is situated towards the end of the volume. However, I want to deal with this tractate as a text that delineates the baseline to the whole topic of temple rituals. Imagine you are now receiving in real time a whole morning sequence, as filmed by a drone flying above the temple mount. And imagine you are watching that film with the rabbis who lived some time after the destruction of the temple who took it upon themselves to commit to memory that which, alas, no longer existed anymore. First, they committed it to their oral memory by reciting it. The origin of the word Mishnah is from the verb lishnot to repeat, and thus their name is Tanaim. They tanu the narrative in Aramaic or shanu in Hebrew, recited it repeatedly until it was written down decades after the destruction of the temple, when it wasn't practiced anymore and was actually replaced by daily prayer. The Tanaim recorded the temple routine meticulously for two purposes. One, we must always be prepared for the rebuilding of the temple and the renewal of the rituals in it as the national Jewish center for worshiping God. Suddenly, during the first couple of centuries after the destruction of the temple, the hopes for seeing it rebuilt were not only alive, but sometimes even realistic. The scholars note that the tractate probably ended with the words: seder hatamid bet elokeinu amenu amen. This is the Seder, the blueprint of the daily service in the house of our God. May it be built soon in our days. Amen. I will later talk about the passage added to the tractate as an epilogue after this ceremonious conclusion. And let me remind you that even today, here in Israel, we feel the messianic tension over the renewal of temple ritual evoked by Zionist renewal of sovereignty in the land. But even as this hope fades out somewhat along the ages since then, the second goal of constant evocation of this narrative takes precedence, searching for the threads that link ancient sources about our forefathers' sense of spirituality with our own, not one thread, but zillions of fine ones that intertwine and form our identity as one people. I invite you now to join me in following the drone as it follows the priests around every single morning of the year. Chapter 1. The priests sleep in three places next to the temple as guards, careful not to abuse their work uniform. Right before dawn, they need to immerse in water to purify themselves and check themselves for seminal discharge that bars them from serving today. The chores at the temple were distributed among the priests present that day by lottery. And the first one is the clearing of the altar from the remnants of yesterday's sacrifices that had been burning on it at night. The priests walk with lights in their hands in two columns surrounding the temple Azara, courtyard, where the altar is, and some stay for the preparation of the chavitin, the pan-meal offering. Chapter 2. A detailed account of the clearing of the altar from the remnants of and the ashes, followed by the picking of wood for the day's lighting of fire on two altars, the big one in the azara, the courtyard, and the smaller one inside the Heikhal, a word that literally means the temple or the palace, and refers to the part of the temple known as the holy, the Kodesh, as opposed to the part known as the holy of holies, which is entered only once a year on Rom Kippur and only by the high priest. The priests light the fire on both altars and congregate again. Chapter 3 begins with a lottery aimed at distributing the next 13 chores. These include the shchita, ritual slaughtering of the lamb, the preparation of the inner altar and the menorah, candelabra, for lighting them, the placing of various parts of the sacrificial lamb on the altar, and the placing of the accompanying wheat offering, solid and chavitim, the pan offering, and the wine. Ninety-three instruments of silver and gold, needed for the performance of the various chores, are taken out. The lamb is picked and slaughtered precisely at dawn, and this is synchronized with the work of other priests who elsewhere prepare the menorah for lighting it. Chapter 4 describes in great detail the sacrifice of the lamb on the altar. This is the very core of the morning service, so it is at the center of the Masechet tractate. The preceding chapters lead to this climax, and the following chapters take us away from it towards the resolution of the whole plot. The meticulous efficiency in professionalism is impressive. We hold our breath as we watch the priests worry over every detail because they do this on behalf of all of us, and if they fail, their chet, their missing the mark, may be visited on all of us. And yet, with all this excitement, for those of us who find this gruesome, like myself, let me mention at this point that Harav Abraham Yitzchak HaKorhen Cook, an important religious Zionist leader and theologian, and himself of priestly descent, argued that the history of the Jewish people is part and parcel of cosmic evolution towards more holiness everywhere, so that in due course, animals will be as holy as humans, and all sacrifices in the third temple in the future will be from the vegetable world only. Menachot. Chapter 5. The priests say some brachot, blessings, which I will go into later. The last two rounds of lottery are performed. The priests prepare for the lighting of the incense on the inner altar, and the Levine, the Levites prepare for the daily song. Chapter 6. The Lighting of the Menorah and of the Incense. Chapter 7 completes the account, the blessings of the priests, which I will discuss later, and what happens when the high priest himself wants to perform any of the dot the chores, detailed here. The chapter ends with the daily song of the Leviim with Levites. I would now like to discuss two themes that underline the temple rituals that can inspire us today. The temple is the central metonym that represents the entire people of Israel, and prayer as the substitute of animal sacrifices. All Jews had a part in the temple by virtue of the fact that all had to give half a shekel annually to finance it. This could never be overrun by whatever donations the rich made, in addition to this universal obligatory tax, which financed, first of all, the daily sacrifice. Originally, every family was supposed to send its firstborn son for the temple service, and only later was this replaced by the service of one tribe only, that of Levi. However, even then, all other tribes were required to have their representatives present in the temple courtyard at all times, and they are referred to as the An, um, the people, who respond to the priests and affirm the tasks they perform on behalf of all. Our tractate also insists that some of the sounds of the temple rituals and its scents spread all over Jerusalem and even as far out as Yericho, Jericho, or even Michvar, east of the river Jordan. And let us also mention the mitzvah, the law that requires all males, larregel, to come up to the temple three times a year during the festivals, bring their offerings, and celebrate in the presence of God. How then can we preserve this layout of the whole people around the temple when it is no longer there? we have to resort to models of replacing the actual rituals with other spiritual content. But first, a word of caution. Rabbinical Judaism developed at the same time as Christianity, which co-opted the biblical narratives and interpreted them as allegories that prefigure the coming of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, as Savior of humanity. In Christianity, Christ is the sacrificial lamb who replaces all temple sacrifices. One example of Christian interpretation that comes to mind is the Greek word holocaust for those sacrifices that were burnt on the altar in their entirety, such as the daily morning lamb, ola in Hebrew. After World War II, this term was used to name the genocide of the Jewish people by the Nazis, I urge us all to check ourselves. Does this term fit our theology? Do we believe that God required us to offer millions of Jews to be burned in their entirety on the altar? I do not, and have stopped using this Christian terminology in this context. The Christian model of replacing the temple rituals with a mass in church is thus unacceptable. We insist that the Torah is not the Old Testament, but is alive in us, as it was when revealed to us at Sinai. We complete the reading of the entire Torah in our synagogues once a year, and this includes the passages that detail the temple rituals, and passages relating to the daily morning ritual are included in our daily morning prayer. Additional spiritual value inspired by the temple ritual can be found in the Midrashim, the textual interpretations that see the desert tabernacle as reflecting God's creation of the world on the one hand, and on the other hand, as constituting the origin of creative work, which is forbidden on Shabbat. In this way, the tabernacle and the temple become the medium that enables every Jew's life to align with cosmic holiness. The most impressive process of impregnating the temple ritual with the eternal spiritual content is the gradual institution of daily prayer as replacement of kobanot, sacrifices. Please join me now in re-reading the tractate in search of words spoken by the priests as they go about performing the act. We will find this in the beginning of the fifth chapter, after the sacrifice of the daily lamb. The priests congregate, say one blessing, apparently the one we know now as preceding Kriat the reading of the Torah verses Shema Israel, namely the blessing Ahavar Abba, concerning the love that binds together God and the people of Israel. Then, they read the Ten Commandments, a practice that was cancelled after the rise of Christianity that claimed that this text is the only one revealed at Sinai. This is followed by the reading of the three passages we include today in Kriyat Shma, Shema, Shema Hayaim Shamoah, Vayomir. This concludes the prayers of the priests, and is followed by three blessings they address to the people, the Am, which is represented daily by members of all other tribes standing in the temple's courtyard. The first blessing is Emet the one affirming... Our belief in God as our Savior, Gaal Yisrael, and indeed, even today concludes the reading of Shema. The second and third blessing are today placed towards the end of Tfilat Amidah, the core of the prayer, which is said silently as we stand before God. One is Avodah, beginning with the word Retze, our prayer for God to accept our rituals, our cult, our Avodah. The second one is Birkat Kohanim, the three verses the priests say in their capacity of transmitters of God's protection of the people. Every Shabbat, the host of the priests performing the temple chores was replaced by the next priestly guard. So an additional blessing was said on Shabbat, wishing the entering host love, fraternity, peace and friendship. Ahava ve'achva the Shalom v preconditions to the successful performance at the Temple. These are words we recognize from the last blessing at Jewish weddings. And then, at the very end, as an addendum to the entire tractate, there is a passage that spells out the Shir, Psalm, that was said by the Levine, the Levites, at the end of the morning service, a different one every day of the week. This passage is included today at the end of the morning prayer as well as the respective psalm of every day of the week. Some prayers then were inserted into the temple rituals at least in its last decades and these function as a bridge over the troubled schism between sacrifices as the cult of God and a religion without sacrifices. Another instance of continuity into later ages we can find in the Temple Menorah with its seven candles, which reminds us of the holiday of Hanukkah, in which we commemorate the purification of the Temple by the Chashmonaim, the Hasmoneans, and the Chanukiah, the Menorah, we light in our homes, albeit one of eight candles. But I want to draw attention to a more dramatic move made by the rabbis. In addition to the view that prayer was instituted as a replacement of sacrifices, Another view arises that plants the origins of daily prayer in the practices of our three avot, forefathers. This view is obviously linked to the already established practice of obligatory prayer three times a day, whereas the Torah only institutes two daily sacrifices, at dawn and towards sunset, shacharit and mincha. If Abraham initiated shacharit, and Yitzhak initiated Mincha, and Yaakov initiated Avit, what then would be the equivalent of the evening prayer in the temple ritual? The answer is the continued burning of the remnants on the altar during the night. I suggest that the introduction of our three forefathers into the saga of Jewish daily prayer is another way of easing our transition from a temple-oriented religion to wider communal and personal expressions of spirituality. I would like to dedicate this talk to the memory of Farcha Flora Sassoon, the philanthropist and Torah scholar who was born in Bombay, Mumbai in 1856, died in London in 1936 and brought to rest in Jerusalem. In 1924, she was invited to give the annual speech at Jews' College in London. The Orthodox Rabbinical School. She opened her scholarly speech by referring to the Talmudic laws concerning incense offering, the ktorit. One detail is that every 60 or 70 years the incense could be offered from the leftovers. This, she said ironically, may echo Jewish men's perception of Jewish women. They consider themselves to be the essence of Judaism and place women at the margins, so that for the first time in the school's 70-year history, a woman is allowed to give a Torah speech. The present Jofa UK project of arranging for the whole Mishnah to be taught by women is the ultimate completion of Flora Sassoon's life work. The Chaim. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah